0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally,
1: where we and our guests discuss relevant health related topics from an authentically Catholic
0: perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Andrew and me, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. We aim to be a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everyone else. Today, our guest will be our own bishop, Kevin C. Rhodes, who is the bishop of the bipolar diocese of Fort Wayne-South Bend, and he was recently elected head of the United States Catholic Council of Bishops Committee on Doctrine, which oversees a subcommittee on health care issues. But first, we're going to talk about a recent medical news item, and Andrew, I found this article, and it had lots of easy charts to understand, and I like those visual articles. I don't know (laughs) if you do, but...
1: It definitely helps. They stand out in the medical journals, don't they?
0: Yes, but I can't show it to our listeners, but I can at least show it to you, and and there it is. And this article came into my mailbox uh, earlier this week. It's from the June 2018 issue of the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and I get that free because I went to medical school there. Now, it's from the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine, so the topic might surprise you, and it's, Gender in Graduate Medical Education, Is Obstetrics and Gynecology a Justifiable Outlier? And what it means is that if we look in history from over 50 years ago, in 1961, females made up only 7% of new residents in obstetrics and gynecology. As of 2015, they made up 83% of obstetrics and gynecology residents. And there were a few other specialties that were more women than men. Can you guess what any of those might have been, Andrew? Well,
1: you know... Actually, one of the things that struck me is just how many more women are getting into medicine in general. My my mother is a family medicine doctor. My, my dad is too. But I know she would always tell me stories. She was one of very few women in medical school, even when she was in training. And now I think the plurality of folks are. So I was interested to learn about the specialties.
0: Yes. Uh, and as far as the uh, medical student ratio go, if this article quotes 49.8% women. I've seen something else that last year for the first time ever, there were more women than men, but it's, it's very close to 50-50. But other specialties that have more women than men, pediatrics was 73%, allergy immunology was 67%, and now my own specialty of dermatology, 64% women. So when I go to conferences these days, I feel like the Blessed Virgin Mary, blessed am I among women. There's so <laughs> many women around. Uh, and then family medicine and psychiatry, both with 55% women. So those are the specialties that have more women than men. On the other end, the specialty with the most men, orthopedic surgery, 85%. And in fact, there's been an initiative since 2012 to increase women in orthopedic surgery.
1: Oh, interesting. That, that is something that seems to be, I mean, it, it resonates with my experience. I, I'm not sure if I know any women orthopedic surgeons
0: and then neurosurgery is 80% men, and then thoracic surgery and urology, 75% men. So those are the specialties that are at either end of the spectrum with a so-called imbalance between the sexes. Now, there is no initiative to increase men in obstetrics and gynecology, and in fact, this article was written because many people are vociferously saying that men don't even have a place in obstetrics and gynecology. And if that kind of statement was made in regards to orthopedic surgery about women, it would certainly be seen as uh, sexist and discriminatory. But for some reason, it's not being that seen that way with OB-GYN doctors.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I kind of wonder what Chris would say about this, being uh, a male who practices OB-GYN.
0: Uh, I would love to. But, I mean, he's told me he's becoming um almost a dinosaur, not because of age, but because there are so few men in it. And he, t- he has told me that uh, at his previous facility, pretty much the deliveries were given to the women docs and the men docs were mostly doing gynecology and not labor and delivery. That's interesting. So, uh, for instance, this article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings says that Men are actively discouraged from seeking obstetrics and gynecology, and they reference uh, websites called the Student Doctor Network and, and the Doctors TV Show. And in fact, in this article, there was a study done in a journal called Contemporary OBGYN, and with permission, they published some of the anonymous comments that those training in OBGYN said. And they say, quote, hiring is incredibly sexist. I feel sexual discrimination is going to change this profession forever. And here it means sexual discrimination against men. Uh, Another statement, it's increasingly impossible for males to be successful in OBGYN. Or it's become a female-dominated business with discrimination against men. So the article asks the question, is obstetrics and gynecology unique in a way that legitimizes the preponderance of women? Can you think of any reasons why it might be that it should be that way? Well, I, I guess just to kind of state the obvious, I
1: guess it's a specialty dedicated to women only, and that that may be the only specialty that's, that men don't have an equivalent, you know. The,
0: the closest would be urology, but there are still female urology patients. Oh, yeah. Probably, I, I'd say, even maybe half. Okay. So they've looked at data, though. Do female OB-GYN doctors spend more time with their patients than male OB-GYN doctors? Actually, it's the other way around. The men spend more time with OB patients than the women doctors do. That would seem like a positive thing. That is a positive thing. I would think so. And they've also shown that male obstetricians are more sensitive about doing pelvic exams than female Obstetricians. Oh, interesting. That's, I did find that. And then, okay, the key question here is, what do the patients themselves prefer? And the article says that there is no preference in studies of obstetricians, gynecologists, breast surgeons, or cosmetic plastic surgeons, all things that cater more to women than to men. They did point out there's a slightly higher participatory decision-making that is pursued by the female doctors, but it was not significantly different and didn't affect whether or not a woman wanted a man or a woman as their doctor.
1: So if effectively, the patients don't, in in mass, they don't have a preference, whether it's a, a male or a female doctor.
0: Right. So it seems like there should not be, based on this article, a a preference one way or another, and that if men want to be obstetricians and gynecologists, they should be allowed to be. And so they end the article by asking, does sexual diversity strengthen a medical specialty by having a diversity of men and women?
1: i I'd, I'd like to think, yes, I mean, we're working under that presumption for every other area of medicine that having a, a diverse workforce would yield benefits from
0: people's different experiences and talents. I would think so. But so I found it interesting that many in the field feel like there is a definite discrimination against men. And yet on the other end of the spectrum with the orthopedic surgeons, we are actively pursuing uh, making orthopedics more available and more interesting. Uh, for women, which I think is a good thing.
1: Well, that is very interesting.
0: Thanks for bringing that out, Tom. Any time. And now we will move on to Andrew's health tip of the day. I do
1: have another health tip today. This one is coming from September of 2016 from the good old USPSTF regarding tuberculosis screening. And the USPSTF recommends screening for latent tuberculosis infections in populations that are deemed at increased risk.
0: Now, a lot of people might think that uh, tuberculosis has gone the way of the dinosaur. I mean, it used to be called consumption and you'd see it in old movies or old books, but it's still out there, isn't it? It
1: definitely is. And it's something that, in at least locally, has been on the rise over the last year. And it's something that we're definitely very aware of, especially with immigrants from other countries who don't have the, the opportunities that we have had as a, a third world country is that why it's on the rise? I think think that's a a large part of the the motivation not motivation I guess that's a large explanation for it especially in our area
0: yes and it is much more common when I've traveled abroad well tell us what we need to know well I I always like to break it into the top three things so in honor of the Trinity (laughs) (laughs) precisely
1: the perfect the perfect number and so the top three things you know number one they recommend screening only high-risk people there was a time back in the day when, when people were routinely screened. I remember talking to patients who every year in elementary school they would get screened for tuberculosis, oh. and they were average risk. Currently, we're only screening people who are at high risk. So if you might be wondering, am I at high risk? The, the people that this would account for would be people who work in healthcare, people who work in or live in homeless shelters or corre- correctional facilities, also people that are IV drug users, folks that are immigrants from certain countries that have high rates of tuberculosis and those with other chronic diseases, anything from HIV to diabetes or kidney disease, that puts you at a higher risk for developing tuberculosis.
0: And there's one other group that's not on there that is screened every year. What's that? Healthcare workers.
1: Oh, yes, that's right. I, I, I tried to mention that at the top.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. my My <laughs> brain was probably somewhere else. You're,
1: you're fast. You're ahead of me, Tom. I'm
0: or behind you. I'm probably behind <laughs> you this time. So go on to point number <laughs> but two. You're exactly and... <laughs> right. We we get
1: screened every year, and it's something that we always we always get reminded to do. I've I've synchronized mine with the calendar at this point to so help remember. But the reason we screen is because we have a treatment, and so tuberculosis is a bacterial infection of the lungs that can be latent. So you can be infected and not be sick, but it comes out later in life when when you're run down or you develop a chronic disease. If we can catch it before that happens to you, we have treatments that can fix it. However, the treatments do have a lot of side effects, especially related to the liver and other things, and it's worse as you get older. So screening early and often for high-risk people is a, a proven benefit. And then lastly, the, top, the third thing that I'd, I'd like people to know is there's actually two ways to screen. The most common way that Tom and I are familiar with is with the skin testing.
0: And I can tell you my nurses vie with each other to see who's going to inject me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a unique thing. It's different than a normal injection where you just put a, a small 0.1 ml bleb of fluid under the skin. And you look for what what is known as a delayed type hypersensitivity response where the skin would turn red in a a larger measurable amount if the person has tuberculosis than if they do not. There's also another type of of testing, uh, blood testing, that is helpful if, if people have previously been vaccinated. There's a vaccine against tuberculosis that is not used in America, but it's used in India and other parts of the world that will, will make the skin test not effective. And so there's a role for this blood test as well.
0: What's that blood test called? Uh,
1: there's, there's a couple companies that make it, but it's actually IgRA is the abbreviation interferon gamma release assay. So it's a cell-mediated immunity
0: against tuberculosis. Is that more sensitive to finding cases than the injection test, or is it similar? I think it's similar, okay. but it it's
1: it would depend on how likely the person is to have tuberculosis. If they're likely to have it, then it would be better to go with the blood test. If they're unlikely to have it, then it would be better to go with the skin test in looking at the sensitivities and specificities. So has
0: that blood test replaced doing a chest X-ray in the patients who had that That vaccine
1: not not equivalently. The chest X ray still has a role because if either of them turn positive, then you've got to do the chest X ray. Very good. But some people prefer to screen with the blood test only, or screen with both of them. And so if there's if there's a muddy picture, you have a second way of screening. But at the end of the day, if anything screens positive, you got to evaluate with a chest X ray and then potentially treat the patient.
0: Very good. Well, we're on to the end of the first segment, which means it's time for the Trivia Question of the Week. And this week's trivia question is an eponymous position, which means it's named after a person. The question is, what is the Trendelenburg position and why is it used in medicine? The Trendelenburg position. Be back for the fourth quarter of the show to find out the answer. Until then, this is Dr. Doctor, and we'll be right back with our guest interview. And welcome back to the second segment of this show. I'd like to introduce our guest. He's our own bishop, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, who's going to discuss with us an intriguing topic brought up in an article in Obstetrics and Gynecology, Do Catholic Hospitals Discriminate Against Non-Catholic Patients? Welcome, Bishop Rhodes.
2: Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you. It's
0: great to have you here. And he is the chairman-elect for the United States Council of Catholic Bishops Committee on Doctrine and under this committee is a subcommittee on health care issues, so we thought it was especially pertinent for him to be here. Now, in this March 2018 article in the journal called Obstetrics and Gynecology, the author points out that Catholic hospitals provide one out of every six hospital beds in the United States, and in some locations, they're the only Catholic hospitals, and that Catholic hospitals are required to abide by something the bishops published called the Ethical and Religious Directives. And the final point that this article makes is that sometimes patients do not anticipate limitations on services that they might expect at Catholic hospitals. So Bishop Rhodes, what would you say in response to this article? Should patients be notified ahead of time of limitations that they might face at a Catholic hospital?
2: That's a really good question. I read the article. I thought there was some bias in the article, but at the same time, you know, we don't keep our, um, our teaching secret. I mean, our Catholic <laughs> institutions should be upfront about what we believe, you know, and also our mission, and of course our, our mission with healthcare, is that we provide services that are in accord with Catholic teaching on the dignity of the human person. And therefore, yeah, nothing should be hidden from potential patients. As a matter of fact, I think even the ethical and religious directives should be readily available uh, for anyone who would want to see them, and you know, if the if a patient is being cared for at a hospital and you know asks to have some kind of procedure that we would consider immoral, you know, the um, I think it would be good that they would know even beforehand that you know these these are the principles that we follow. These are the things we believe. So we don't do abortions. We don't do direct sterilizations. We don't provide artificial contraception. Um, You know, we don't have anything to do with things like physician-assisted suicide. You know, all those areas that, um, you know, would would violate our Catholic teaching.
0: And much of the world sees these as, as negatives, things we don't do. But could you clarify for our audience, by saying no to these things, what are the greater things that we as Catholics are saying yes to?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, fundamentally, we're saying yes to life, and we believe that those in the healthcare profession have um, a responsibility, a duty to serve life, to protect life. And um, that's that's certainly the most fundamental principle. And then there are other things that um, – you're right. I mean, when we prohibit certain things, it's because they do not respect – uh, the dignity of human life, or in certain situations, the dignity of marriage and the the marriage act by which human life is transmitted you know so that 's why we will not approve medical practices that uh, undermine these things so you 're right i mean it 's all about really gets down to anthropology, it gets down to the the, the meaning of human life and sexuality and uh, respect for uh, those goods, those gifts from God.
1: You know, I, I really like what you said there, Bishop, about certain procedures, because in, in reviewing this article, you know, the, even the title talks about discrimination. I, I think sometimes we, we live in a discrimination culture where, where people are always claiming discrimination, but, you know, I, I would assert that maybe the Catholic hospitals are not discriminating against the patient. You know, and so discrimination is not the right word. Can can you help us identify the difference between discriminating against a patient, which we obviously wouldn't condone, versus some procedures which we feel are immoral?
2: Yeah, that's a good distinction you're making. I think, I don't I don't like the word discriminate either. But that's <laughs> you know, in, in the culture in which we live in, for example, in some of these areas. It's it's the terminology that's used, like the word discrimination, or calling certain thing things services when they really are things that are harmful. So or they're disservices. Not <laughs> they're they're disservices, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. They'll say, yeah, they'll say Catholic hospitals, you know, don't don't do this. They're not, you know, providing these services, and it's really, you know, inaccurate. So. I don't know what other word I would use. I do think that the author of the article, even though it was kind of using that, that language, did point out that, that people come as patients who, who uh, want things that are not allowed by us, and then they're, they're shocked or surprised or angry. Um, and I think that should be a voice. So I would agree with the author on that, that we need to make better known you know, what we stand for in these areas. As I said, it's nothing that we keep secret purposely or anything like that. But I think, for example, the ERDs, I would have them out there for people to read in the hospital admissions, you know, um, or whatever. I think it does point to the idea that a lot of people don't know. So, I would di- strenuously disagree with the idea of discriminating against non-Catholic patients because we we don't, I mean obviously we serve everyone who's sick or in need um, and Catholic health care is especially known for its uh, care for the poor, you'll find a lot of Catholic hospitals or Catholic health care facilities in, in poor areas, rural areas, inner cities, it's not about making profit. I mean, they have to make ends meet, obviously, and that's a challenge, but our, you know we're non-profit entities.
0: If you just joined us, this is Dr. Doctor. We're talking with our bishop, Kevin Rhodes, the uh, chairman-elect of the Committee on Doctrine and Subcommittee on Healthcare Issues about the role of Catholic hospitals and all patients catholic and non-catholic we've been tossing around the term ERDs which stands for the ethical and religious directives for catholic healthcare services and i understand in mid june you released the sixth edition of this is that right
2: yes that was a major item on the agenda and the directives are divided into six different parts and we really didn't didn't make any changes in the first five parts but we made some significant changes in part six.
0: Which is? Uh,
2: it's about, part six was is about collaborative arrangements with other healthcare organizations and providers. Um, that means, for example, well, especially in, in light of uh, economics today, uh, Catholic healthcare, and we've always worked in collaboration with other uh, non-Catholic partners. But that's really been growing because of the healthcare environment in the United States. So there's a lot of collaborative arrangements among healthcare institutions, which is really good. I mean in the sense that it, it ends up that there's better care provided. They can be opportunities. There's some certain things that you know we may not have the resources to do, so we work together with another healthcare entity or vice versa. You know, so that people are, have access to the health care that they need. There may be, for example, certain medical technologies that one institution has and the other doesn't, or certain areas of expertise that one has. So, this collaboration is, is a good thing on the whole. But when we make these, enter into these arrangements, we have to be careful. And that's where this part sits of the, what we call the ERDs, as you mentioned, the Ethical and Religious Directives, comes in. Because we can't be involved institutionally or connected with activities that go against uh, our moral teachings. Um, and that's where, you know, when we talk about, let's say we're, we, we wouldn't enter into a relationship where we have to cooperate in an immoral way, let's say with abortion, so it's so it gets very complicated sometimes. And, and how do you assess this this cooperation? Uh, I don't know if you've probably talked on the show about cooperation with evil and the different distinctions between formal cooperation, which is never allowed, and then material cooperation. Right. Which when it, we uh, talked
0: about uh, certain vaccines, we just covered that.
2: Okay, good. Um, so there's there has to be a moral analysis of these collaborative arrangements, and also to see look at uh, not only the issue of cooperation but also the issue of scandal. So we have to really be careful when we enter into these kinds of partnerships that we're not dragged into illicit cooperation uh, with things that go against Catholic teaching. And that's where the role of the bishop comes in. And really, these directives are very helpful to bishops, because ultimately it's the diocesan bishop who's responsible to assess whether a collaborative arrangement is okay or not.
0: That's a lot of responsibility.
2: It is, it is. Now, we only have two Catholic hospitals in our diocese. but We do? Yes, we have St. Joseph Regional Medical Center in Mishawaka, and under and within the same healthcare system, we have St. Joseph Hospital in Plymouth, ah. and they're part of yeah, and they're part of Trinity Healthcare System. But well, here's the confusing thing.
0: thing: there's also St. Joseph Hospital in Fort Wayne, which is not a Catholic hospital. So that brings up a question of: just because they're saying the name, doesn't mean it's Catholic anymore.
2: That's right. St. Joseph in in Fort Wayne used to be Catholic, right? And and then when it was sold by the poor handmaids of jesus christ a religious community it was under the um one of the things in the sale was that the, the person the uh, entity buying it had to follow the uh, ethical and religious directives they had to continue to ah, follow them very uh, good. but then it's been sold multiple times so th- that same uh, requirement you know, isn't enforceable anymore because there've been multiple sales. Oh no! Yeah.
0: So what? But I think
2: they still are. I mean, I don't know. I I don't have any supervision now because it's not Catholic. You know. So, but I think getting back to that idea of of collaboration, the diocese and bishop has to be consulted, and and he has to make sure that um, you know that it's that it's okay that that the Catholic entity isn't being drawn in to engage in things that are impermissible, what we would call immediate material cooperation.
1: So would would an example of that, Bishop, be if if a Catholic hospital maybe purchased uh, a clinic or another hospital and one of the things they did there was abortions, for example, and then now the hospital—
2: Yeah, if the Catholic hospital purchased it, then it would have it should have full authority. If it entered into a collaborative relationship with an institution, the Catholic, I think that would be problematic. If the other institution was doing abortions, but at the very least, there couldn't be any any involvement of the Catholic institution, you know, in referring to them or profiting from abortion or anything like that. So I I don't think there should ever be that kind of, um, uh, there might be other things that we find morally objectionable. When we talk about abortion, we're talking about the most sacred gift of life. So,
1: you know, Bishop, I want to ask you a few more questions regarding this. We do have to cut to a break. This is Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio and the CMA, and we will be right back after this message. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you on behalf of the CMA from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And we are here today discussing healthcare, specifically Catholic healthcare, with Bishop Kevin Rhodes of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Bishop, I, you know, in general, the the bishops have a task force which is now a subcommittee on health care and i know you were extensively involved in that in the past why are the bishops so interested in health care
2: you know thank you andrew you know it goes back to the time of jesus himself i mean his healing of the sick uh, and his care for the suffering so really this has been part of the mission of the church from the very beginning and of course, it developed more structurally and institutionally with the establishment of hospitals and things like that. And, of course, the Catholic Church was, you know, at the forefront of the establishment of hospitals, especially our religious sisters. Um, so, and now it's developed so, so much more. And I think it, it shows the Church's commitment for those who, who are hurting. We've always had great respect for the medical profession it's a place where also where faith and science intersect uh we're talking about the, the the service of the whole person um their body their 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 soul you know jesus is the divine physician of the whole person and uh so it really is integral i think and, and i think we have a very beautiful vision of healthcare, um and we're very committed to it um but there have been a lot of changes in American healthcare that, um, you know, and some erosion uh, of morality in society that have made this more challenging because now we're facing issues, especially at the beginning of life and the end of life, which don't show uh, the concern or the respect for the sanctity of, of human life, which is, really should be at the very heart of. Of real health care.
0: Later this year in November, you're going to pick up the gavel as chairman of the USCCB Committee on Doctrine and, and the Subcommittee on Health Care Issues. Did you seek this? Did others ask you to run for it? How, how did you get here?
2: Uh, no, I did not seek it. Uh, I was nominated uh, by others and then I, I accepted the nomination knowing it was going to be a lot of work. I've, I've had other leadership roles in our conference, in the Bishop's Conference, uh, so I know it is a lot of time, but I, I always feel like if the Lord, you know, I, I don't, I have a hard time saying no when I'm called <laughs> to, to serve, You're a good man. you know, to, to serve my brother bishops in a way, but you know, what's really key in this is that I get a good committee and I'm, I get to name the other bishops on the committee and I've already, ah. uh, asked several that I think would be a big help. It's important to have a really good and good consultants. Yes. Um, And also to have um, a good staff, and uh, I've been very impressed with the staff so far. Um, And the subcommittee on healthcare issues, as you said, used to be a task force, and I was chair of that several years ago at a real challenging time, but I haven't really kept up with its work. I kind of have some idea of issues that we're going to be working on, but... um, So I I also will have to appoint a chair of that subcommittee. And there are some bishops who have really good, strong backgrounds in moral theology that uh, I'm thinking, you know, about who I would appoint to that position.
0: I know that right now one of the uh, senior members of the Catholic Medical Association, a physician and past president of the CMA, sits on the committee. Do you think it's important to have physicians on that subcommittee along with bishops?
2: Yeah, definitely, because, you know, we don't know all the scientific medical uh, information, some of the new things that are coming out, so, so we definitely need that. We, we look to the Catholic Medical Association and Catholic Hospital Association and another group, the National uh, Catholic Center for Bioethics. That's been a really good, also, on, they're real experts in the area of medical, moral, Issues, so so those people are really helpful.
0: And we have a lot of uh, people who are members of both the CMA and the NCBC. It's been very fruitful. What issues do you think are going to be on the top of the docket for the sub- subcommittee on healthcare issues?
2: Well, there's one issue that we've already been talking about in the committee on doctrine, which actually you know enters into the whole healthcare area, and that's this whole um, gender ideology. Um, of course, Pope Francis has been very outspoken. Culturally, we have this phenomenon or this movement to separate gender from sex. Yes. And, of course, fundamental to our understanding is God created man, male and female. He created them. So we don't believe that—and um, I th- actually, and I, I think good science teaches us that, you know, some of the transgender things that are being promoted— are actually harmful
0: yes we had a great interview on this with dr paul hruz hruz on this show he is tremendous a pediatric endocrinologist from st louis he'd be a great resource for you
2: oh i'll, I'll have to get that name then good thank you but i know we're already looking at this and and we're looking at it in the committee on doctrine also from just just uh catholic christian anthropology mm-hmm. the nature of the human person and um, and how sexuality is 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 part of that, but it'll get into the medical issues because of the different types of procedures that that uh, and that would be prohibited uh, in our Catholic facilities, sex reassignment surgery, for example. Yes. Uh, or even hormonal treatments for those who want to transition, you know, to a different gender. And and, we, uh, and especially this, this ideology, because it really is an ideology, um, is ignoring, in my opinion, well, from what I've read, a lot of the good medical evidence that, that uh, reveals how harmful this is, especially for young people.
1: For those of you just tuning in, this is Dr. Doctor on behalf of the CMA coming from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and today we are discussing health care issues with Bishop Kevin Rhodes of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Bishop, can you, I guess, in, in thinking about this subcommittee, is part of the goal to influence national health care policy, or are there some concrete things that the bishops have done to work in that regard?
2: You know, what we do is um, that really doesn 't come under our responsibilities or our mandate as a committee we that would come under another committee, which is domestic policy, and they would get involved in more advocacy you know with government. Ours is more to provide expertise and guidance concerning theological issues um you know areas of faith and morals, so we provide um you know Guidance to the bishops conference and to individual bishops in these various areas that touch on doctrinal issues We also might you might be interested in this too One of our responsibilities has to do with science and human values Um, So we have structured dialogues with the scientific community. Yes um, Which I think is is really really good thing and necessary
0: I got to participate in such a dialogue at the Vatican back at the end of April, this conference called Unite to Cure, which had, you know, some of the foremost world researchers in adult stem cell research, gene editing, and uh, global health care. And this was held under the aegis of the Council for Culture and their Science and Faith Subcommittee, and one of their goals is to help educate bishops around the world on science and faith issues. How do you think that bishops are currently keeping up on these issues who might not have a background in the sciences?
2: Well, I think it depends on individual bishops and how much interest sure. <laughs> that they have. I mean, I like to read a lot and I like to keep up with things. Um, when it gets to biomedical issues, issues of uh, bioethics, I, um, there is a, The National Catholic Bioethics Center has a seminar for bishops every two years. And yeah, I think the last one was on these gender issues. Um, but that's a great way, for, and a lot of bishops go. Oh, And that's to how know. a lot of bishops go. We get it on our calendars. It always has such excellent speakers, and that's how we have ongoing education uh, on, on the medical moral issues. Um, yeah.
0: Uh, that's great. If some of us physicians, Catholic physicians, want to help influence bishops' understanding of things as they're happening in practices, as they're happening in hospitals, which I think complements what the NCBC does, how how can we do that? What, what would be the best way to communicate with you and your brother bishops?
2: I think, um, well, I think in the local area, in the local diocese, is to just offer that um, You know, I've had, um, you know, when I have ongoing formation education for our priests, I'll sometimes, um, I remember once, I forget what the issue was, but had a doctor come in and uh, speak, but that the priests would then know, and I think you do this through the Catholic Medical Guild, both in Fort Wayne and in South Bend, that you are a resource for our priests and our pastoral ministers. So when difficult ethical questions come up, and we don't understand the science behind it or the medical problem, we can call on you. Another way with our Catholic healthcare facilities is we need good people like like you and the other members of the guild to serve on our ethics committees, because that's where, you know, there might be some particular situations where it's not so black and white. So in those ethical evaluations, you know, we have to understand the the, the medical part of it. Of what's going on. So it's good, it's important to have good Catholic doctors, um, healthcare professionals serving also on our ethics committees, and that they are resources when questions come up, not often to the bishop, it's usually parish priests who are maybe visiting the hospital, and you know, a family is having trouble making a decision oh, yes. in an ethical manner. Uh, sometimes the priest can give the good advice, but sometimes he needs to talk to a doctor who, who understands that part of it, can explain. Uh, because, you know, some of these can be pretty difficult, especially, I think, with some end-of-life issues. You know, people aren't sure what to do, and so they need, you know, we have the principles, and we have the ethical and religious directives, but then applying them in an individual case can be you know, difficult.
0: Yes, it can.
1: Well, Bishop, you know, we're we're coming to the end of our interview, but I, I wondered: is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about about the U.S. bishops, and especially in regard to health care?
2: I would just say that, yeah, yeah, I think one of the things is for average Catholics is to is also to be informed about Catholic moral teaching in these areas. I think it. It's it's important, and I think sometimes, like we said earlier in the show, people just know, oh, the church doesn't allow this or doesn't allow that. It's important to understand why and to really, you know, try to be educated on—and not be formed by— you know, the media or, or popular, uh, you know. Um, Unless it's um, this media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But you know what I mean. Sometimes yes. people's <laughs> views are more shaped by, you know, whatever, TV or whatever shows or, or you know, that, that really aren't, um, aren't solid, aren't rooted in, in the real truth about human life and uh, human dignity. so yeah that's the only thing I'd want to add.
0: well we've been blessed to have uh, Bishop Kevin Rhodes with us today to talk to us. Bishop, are you allowed to issue an episode, a blessing over the
2: airwaves? I can. I do all the time on my uh, <laughs> truth and charity show so I hope I'm allowed. please do <laughs> <laughs> yes I will. The Lord be with you
0: and with, with your spirit. spirit.
2: Blessed be the name of the Lord, now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop.
0: Welcome back to the final segment of Dr. Doctor. Now it's time to answer the medical trivia question. And that was, and still is, what is the Trendelenburg position and why is it used? Andrew, have you ever had opportunity to use the Trendelenburg position?
1: Oh, yes. I'd say that this is something that is used, d- depending on the surgery, in a, a large number of surgeries. Have you ever used
0: it in the office?
1: I, not by name, but there's there's been times, and actually in the Boy Scouts back in the day, it's one of the treatments for shock.
0: Right. So the Trendelenburg position uh, is simply uh, raising the body in a flat position so that the feet are about 15 to 30 degrees uh, above the head. So you're, you're tilted with the head down. That's a Trendelenburg position. And in exam tables, uh, especially the ones that are made for operating, this can be easily done. And it's something that I do when a patient gets lightheaded and starts to pass out. Because the theory has always been that by tipping somebody partly upside down, you're going to drive more blood into their brain circulation and they usually pass out because their blood vessels just open up, they drop with gravity and not enough blood goes goes to the brain. That's the theory. However, there's no study that shows that it helps increase blood flow to the brain by putting them in this position and that startled me when I did the research on this question
1: isn't that incredible because it it does seem intuitive and it's it is used commonly but there's not good data to support it
0: it's although there there is other data to say that just lifting the legs up you know may help to drive more circulation putting it at a higher angle but anyway it you know several times a year i'll have a patient who's i'm operating on and they get up too fast they'll get lightheaded we put them back down we put cold uh, compresses on their head and uh they feel better after a while. But there are some cases where this doesn't work and we have to give uh, injections of medicine to help uh, kind of tighten up their blood vessels so the pressure's higher. But the, the origin of the position was actually a surgeon. And he used this position, Andrew, you've seen it in surgery.
1: That's correct. A lot of times for pelvic surgeries, gynecologic surgeries, but then even for some abdominal surgeries to help move the internal organs out of the way so you can work on the area in question.
0: Right. So, and Dr. Trendelenburg, I was a German surgeon uh, in the early 20th century and late 19th century, uh, who used this, and it's still used very often, but most commonly in, uh, in life you would see it as a treatment for shock. When you get lightheaded, you pass out, fall to the ground, what do we do? We, we raise somebody's legs. And it may be that just giving people time, laying down, helps them. But I know that when I've almost passed out in my life, this position has definitely helped me. So that's what the Trendelenburg position is. Uh, One of those other words physician knows that non-physicians might not. We now have a special short interview with Dr. Paul Carson, infectious disease specialist about Clostridium difficile. Dr. Carson, I wanted to ask you a few questions
1: today about C. diff. This is something we hear a lot about and our listeners frequently have questions about. Could you describe a little bit what C. diff is?
3: Sure. So uh, C. diff is kind of the abbreviation for uh, bacterial infection of the intestinal tract called Clostridium difficile, Um, and uh, Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, is a bacteria that um, a portion of the population may carry uh, inadvertently or uh, without problems. Up to 10% of the population may carry this in their colon, in their large bowel. But what can happen is that um, when, particularly when we take an antibiotic, that often will kill off or clear away a lot of the good bacteria that we need in our intestinal tract and allow this C. diff to overgrow. And when that C. diff overgrows in our intestinal tract, it often releases a toxin that can cause uh, diarrheal illness, and that illness can be very mild to something that's a full-blown, very severe infection of the colon that can actually uh, cause necrosis or death of the colon, where, where somebody has to have their entire colon removed, and it can lead to uh, actually fatality. It, it, can, it can be from mild to somebody in the ICU dying of this infection. Is and, this and increasing this is on the rise, uh, on the rise?
0: Are more people getting this, Paul?
3: Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, there's the uh, Centers for Disease Control tracks this, and the rates have, have really skyrocketed in the last uh, ten to fifteen years. Uh, we now have about uh, two million illnesses. And that that I that's likely an underestimate. About two million to maybe even five million illnesses of this each year in the United States. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking at a different. one. Uh, a half a million, uh, up to about a half a million illnesses, and and about 14,000 deaths. And there's a new strain of this that's been introduced uh, across the world and in the United States. And uh, this new strain is much more virulent, makes a lot more of this toxin uh, than older strains. So this has become a very serious problem for us.
1: Dr. Carson, why are we seeing so many cases more now than in the past?
3: you know it's not clear uh, it's a good question uh, so part of it i think is is this new strain which t- which has mutated in a way that it, it's more aggressive uh, it causes more severe disease um, we uh, we are giving you know tons and literally tons and tons of antibiotics um, and these antibiotics are the main promoter of uh, clostridium difficile or c difficile infections um, uh, But but. But the degree of the rise uh, in, in epidemiology of this uh, isn't completely clear, and uh, it, it has a lot of us concerns. This has become one of the leading causes of hospital-acquired infection in the United States.
1: We talk to patients frequently about some of the risks of taking antibiotics. This sounds like a risk for that individual patient, not even a population, but taking an antibiotic for an in- individual patient.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and I would especially caution uh, um, uh, the elderly. So uh, C-, C. diff is much more common as we get older. Um, and people who are immunosuppressed, so people who are on medications or have conditions that weaken their immune system, are much more likely uh, to become uh, symptomatic with this. And so, uh, again, these are sort of good reasons to ask about um, do I really need this antibiotic? And again, antibiotics can save lives. They're absolutely crucial in certain circumstances, but we don't want to take them when we don't uh, really need them.
1: What, what can patients take away uh, in, in regard to C. diff? What would be the take-home message for patients?
3: Um, you know, I, I think if you're on an antibiotic uh, and you start having diarrheal uh, illness after taking the antibiotic, that's a common side effect. But especially if it persists after you stop that antibiotic, you need to see your doctor about that. This is not something to kind of mess around with, Um, and you need to be tested and potentially treated for uh, C. diff infection. And again, that uh, emphasis on using antibiotics wisely and judiciously, uh, only when we really need them and not subjecting ourselves to these potential um, adverse events and effects uh, that are a consequence of antibiotics, especially when, when they're not even needed in the first place.
0: Thank you, Paul, for this tidbit on Clostridium difficile infection and the diarrhea it can cause. We hope to go back to the well for more of your wealth of information. Thank you for joining us. But we've come to the end of another episode, and we really thank you for listening to our show. Please tell your friends about us. Uh, Tell your family about us. Uh, We are now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. We are brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org, which is C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And Dr. Andrew Mulally, signing off until next time. So remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences. So please, choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at redeemerradio.com slash doctor and in the audio library of the Redeemer Radio app. Many support a woman's right to choose, but sadly, few know the consequences of those choices. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. Women who have had an abortion are at higher risk for complications in future pregnancies, especially premature birth and low birth weight of their children. This puts their babies at risk for breathing problems, feeding problems, infections, heart problems, anemia, and eye problems. To find out more, visit cathmed.org.
3: Anyone can become a member of the Catholic Medical Association. Join one of the 100 guilds nationwide or help develop a new guild in your area. You'll get informative publications with the latest trends in medicine and bioethics and the earliest details about the Catholic Medical Association's 87th Annual Educational Conference coming to Dallas in the fall of 2018. Just click on the membership tab today at cathmed.org. That's cathmed.org.